Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are privileged to be joined by Dr. Niels Holm, who is coming to us from Norway. Yes. And he is one of the leading scientists in omega-3 phospholipids. And he's going to help us answer that question in a whole variety of other interesting topics. So welcome and thank you for traveling all the way from Norway to visit with us. Thank you very much. Very much a pleasure. Appreciate you having me here. So uh, most people watching this video will not know who you are. And uh, maybe you can give us a little history because it's really fascinating. I believe earlier you were sharing you... Uh, really wanted to be a fisherman. You have, your whole family is, is from this fishing background, but you got seasick, yeah. so you went into science instead. Yeah. So I had to go to science instead. So after having tried my fortunes on the high seas for a little while, I realized that this is nothing for me. So science was a better choice. And it's a big uh, occupation in Norway, right? There are large percentage of the population is employed well, in the fishing industry? It used to be, used but to be. it's Not still anymore. a very important part of our economy. Okay. Uh, and everything that has to do with what we call the blue economy, Mm -hmm. So, um, Blue being for the water? Yes, okay. meaning uh, looking at the ocean as a source of materials mm -hmm. and food. Mm -hmm. uh, not just traditional fisheries, but also such things as harvesting algae mm -hmm. uh, and harvesting everything that is in the seas in a responsible way. Okay. Uh, regulating the fisheries uh, has been a tremendous success, actually. Uh, today, uh, for example, the herring fisheries that was almost dying out when I was a kid and I still remember it, um, is, way, is back uh, at capacities that we haven't seen since World War II. Oh, that's it's exciting news. Yes, it is. To see that this can be turned around is excellent. Yes. So why don't we address the, the basic question I opened up with, is I think a, there's a lot of confusion on this issue, and there's, and there's good reason to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, because if you just look at it as simplistically, it would seem that the closer you get to the the foundational sources of the nutrition, the, the better it's going to be. But there's, some, there's this problem with this because most plant-based omega-3s are completely different than animal-based. And that would be that they have this fatty acid called ALA or alpha-linoleic acid, and it's 18 carbons. And that doesn't work to, our body really needs the, the 20 and the 22 carbons, the, the e, EPA and the DHA. And there's a little enzyme that converts it, and it, does, it doesn't work well in most people. No, and it, it's really a very interesting question. Um, how did uh, humans, and actually most mm -hmm. uh, mammals, uh, get dependent on a type of fatty acid or a type of fat mm -hmm. that you only find in the oceans? Mm -hmm. Great question, mean, yeah. It's a really interesting question. and. Um, uh, without getting too far into that one, we have to realize that when we started to look into uh, how lipid affects our health, mm -hmm. uh, the early work, for example, by Jörn Dielberg and, 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 uh, and his associate Bang in, in Greenland, um, then um, they, realized, they found these uh, in very interesting long-chain fatty acids, polyunsaturated fatty acids, and they realized that the two of them, EPA and DHA, had their first double bond in the, in the third position. Mm -hmm. And named then, then they named them omega-3 fatty acids, mm -hmm. which 
chemically and technically is correct. Mm -hmm. um, and so the research that has come since then has focused on th these two fatty acids. And we've uh, slowly uh, learned a lot about the biological effects of those fatty acids and how they're important for our health. And of course, then we realized that there is a similar type of fatty acid called omega-6 fatty acids, mm -hmm. usually a little shorter. Um, and they seem to have some opposite effects. Um, they're, they're also essential for, for life, uh, but to a different degree. And then um, you, of course, chemically, you could name any fatty acid that has its first double bound in the three position an omega-3 fatty acid. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, we see that um, uh, different um, players are trying to, to use the, the label omega-3 as a general label for healthy mm -hmm. or a general label for, for being, having biological effects in line with EPA and DHA. Mm -hmm. That's simply not the case. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's kind of a mislabeling. Uh, yeah, we see this a lot in omega-3 eggs in yes. the grocery store, at least in the United States. Uh, we see the same it, in Norway. Yeah, and, and that's not the same e omega-3 that you find in fish it's, no. it's at all. They just feed them, well, you can, you, you're well, more of an expert. One should actually say we, we should be distinct and say marine omega-3s, mm -hmm. or we should say long-chain omega-3s. Then, then that's correct. Mm -hmm. But the 18... Uh, carbon chain omega-3s, they do not have the documentation for biological effects. In fact, uh, extensive um, studies on meta-studies um, pretty much comes out with them neither being bad nor good. Mm -hmm. uh, we can convert a certain very small amount of them into the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, but they really, it really doesn't help us much. Mm -hmm. um, there may be uh, genetic differences. I was told by a professor from Japan that certain people in, um, in Mongolia mm -hmm. uh, seems to be better to, 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 to do that uh, elongation and desaturation. But all in all, um, you cannot, you cannot um, label the same type of biological and uh, uh, health effects on the short chain or shorter chain omega threes as, as you could do with EPA and DHA. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, in Norway, for example, just ahead of Christmas, uh, we had a, a, a big um, uh, headline in, in our main newspaper telling telling us that uh, reindeer meat contains as much omega threes as cod. Mm. Which is, of course, uh, right. Techni technically correct. Technically correct, but it really, um, it really confuses people, mm -hmm. and I think that confusion has to really well, should go. What, let's just provide a bit more foundation as to: Are there any other reasons other than the limited conversion of the short chain fats and into the long chains that most people have, and then the lack of documented benefits? In, in other words, the, the short chain animal or plant-based. ALA is, doesn't provide the same benefit, and there's no there's no really research to do that. There's no research that shows that it's going to convert to the the longer chain animal fats. Now that's correct, and also if you simplify it, if you ask when you look at the uptake and distribution of EPA and DHA, mm -hmm. and that's something that myself and and mm -hmm. scientists at Arcobiomarine has been doing, uh, um, then you see something very strange, and I. I could hardly believe it but the first time I saw it. If you, after a meal of salmon, mm -hmm. or after you've taken krill oil or fish oil, mm -hmm. uh, you actually see the fatty acids 
uh, in plasma or blood for more than three days after. Mm. So you have a meal and your body works on its distribution and redistribution and re-redistribution for three days. That's hardly consistent with being food. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at the short chain omega-3 fatty acid or any other short um, mm -hmm. uh, fatty acid, then you see them being rapidly absorbed. Uh, they peak at a couple of hours mm -hmm. and then they're gone in 10 hours. Wow. So our bodies are clearly handling them very differently. And that shouldn't really surprise us because the short chain fatty acids is simply food. They're sources of energy. Mm -hmm. The really long chain, those that are more than 20, mm -hmm. um, especially the uh, EPA and DHA, are structural elements. They're not mainly foods, but they are elements that, are, that actually make up our cells. Mm -hmm. And that's two completely different functions in our body. All right, so I think we've established pr that there's pretty strong support for having a clean source and healthy source of animal-based omega-3s as a differentiator from plant-based, and yeah. not to make the mistake of, of confusing those two, because it could have pretty catastrophic health consequences for you. Yeah. So the next practical question becomes, is how do we identify healthy sources? Healthy being non-contaminated with, with uh, toxins, but also structurally intact, so it's not uh, going to be distorted in some way. And then, then thirdly, and I think importantly, is that it's absorbed eff efficiently. So those are three big issues. And it's really easy to mistake. If you make a mistake on any one of them, you're not going to be successful at integrating these important molecules into your, into your cell membranes. I, I think, first of all, uh, unfortunately almost, many people would say it's a fact of life that fats are really well absorbed. Mm -hmm. you, know, you eat fat, it's taken off. That's not true. Well, it depends on which fat we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there is, there, is, um, there is one form of the omega-3s that may have an absorption problem. Not always. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you have it together with a decent meal, mm -hmm. right, then etolesters will be taken up. But I have myself done or seen experiments done mm -hmm. where the etolesters simply pass through without being absorbed whatsoever. I'm sorry, what passes through? Uh, ethyl esters. Oh, ethyl esters, okay. Ethyl. Just okay. passing through. Okay. Not, not uh, non-absorption whatsoever. Okay. Now, if you have it with the right kind of food, mm -hmm. uh, you, you can alleviate that. You, you and where would you find an ether ethyl ester? Well, that is uh, the, let's call the most synthetic form of the marine omega-3 fatty acid. It's simply a fatty acid that has been sliced off from its triglyceride uh, source usually or from any other source and then it is being ethylated with ethanol so it is okay. a construct uh, and a typical would this be what they do to fish oil it is typical to what you do in some types of fish oil so for example in um, in the um, in the uh, only pharmaceutical uh, uh, that is that is right, or it's not the only anymore, but uh, pharmaceuticals uh, that contain omega-3 fatty acids is made in this way, mm -hmm. or usually was made in this way. And what was the rationale for doing that that way? The rationale is to have a safe way of purifying it, mm -hmm. uh, because you would have to purify mm -hmm. it according to pharmaceutical standards, also standardizing it, mm -hmm. and the third thing would be to have a concentrate. So to have it concentrated enough, then 
you could gain a very high concentrate of these fatty acids by doing it that way. Mm -hmm. But it is a, you really have to take your fish oil and completely decompose it. Mm -hmm. And then you would have to chemically react your fatty acids with ethanol to, to form ethyl esters. So one of the general principles we have in basic uh, pr principles is to stay healthy, is to eat as simple as possible yeah. with the, the less refinement the better. So this sounds like an awful lot of refinement. And there's a lot of room for damaging these very perishable fatty acids because when it's omega-3, these are double bonds here. They're unsaturated. They're polyunsaturated, actually. Mm -hmm. And every unsaturated bond is, is a potential for disaster, a, for a catastrophe of oxidizing that and, and causing damage. And, and it becomes not only non-functional, but it actually causes complications because it's almost toxic. What I would, I would maintain, though, that uh, the best way of getting your, omega, your marine omega-3s would be to eat safe, uh, fresh fish. Mm -hmm. um, whenever I'm asked th that question, that, that is my standard uh, answer. And, and most likely it's because there's, there's, I mean, obviously you have the, the important omega-3s in there, animal-based omega-3s, DHA yeah. and EPA, but there's also other components in that seafood yeah, that we'd probably, many of them we don't even recognize at this point, but no, it works and synergistically. And also, um, I lectured physiology for almost 20 years. Okay. And I told my students about how fats are being taken up. Mm -hmm. uh, they get down into your gut. Mm -hmm. There are lipases in your gut that will decompose them. Then they will be resynthesized in the retrocyte. They will be taken up. Uh, they will be resynthesized and they will be made into cholomicrons, small emulsions. And then they will flow through your lymph mm -hmm. into the uh, into vena cava and then go into your body. Mm -hmm. Now, while that is mostly right for the triglycerides, I never even considered what happens with phospholipids. Mm -hmm. And with phospholipids, we've become aware of that it isn't exactly like that. Um, uh, in phospholipids, um, at, at least a, a part of the, uh, the omega-3s are taken up as lysophosphatides, and they are water-soluble enough to be taken directly up into blood and then they pass into the liver and are being redistributed before they are then sent into the systemic circulation. And that explains part of why it takes so long to redistribute those fatty acids. Mm -hmm. So I think we've been grossly underestimating how complicated this is. We've been under, uh, underestimating the very fundamental problem our bodies have with regards to the uptake of fat. Fats are not water soluble. Mm -hmm. So our bodies have to go to, to um, very radical techniques to emulsify these fats, mm -hmm. uh, to transport them to the different uh, parts of our body. Well, and we, we, phospholipid is a technically and scientific correct term for what we're talking about, but some people may know though it's this lecithin. Yes, and which, could, maybe, which is a good word. Yeah, maybe you can you know, expand on what not only what phospholipids are, the types of types of the ones that are available and then their purposes? Well, uh, if we start out very basically, uh, two large, maybe the two largest groups of, of lipids, of fats, mm -hmm. uh, are both called glycerolipids. And they're called glycerolipids simply because uh, the, the skeleton onto which you add your fatty acids is glycerol, which is mm -hmm. a trivalent alcohol. So you could add three fatty acids onto this little molecule. 
Then if you add three fatty acids onto that molecule, then you get the triglyceride. Mm -hmm. So which you find in oils, which you find in fish oil, which you find in vegetable oils. Which you find in your blood and, and is measured as a risk factor for heart disease. Well, it might be. Yeah. yeah if it's too if much it's of fasting, it. yeah. yeah. So, and then the other, and, and in nature, this serves as energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a perfect form of energy because it is dense, so it has a high energy density, mm -hmm. and it doesn't bind water. Exactly why uh, it's difficult to f for its uptake and distribution. That's mm -hmm. exactly also why they're so valuable, because we can pack these into adipocytes and keep a dense uh, storage of energy for a rainy day. Mm -hmm. Now, then the other molecule, you also start out with glycerol. You add two fatty acids. But instead of the third fatty acid, you could add a phosphate, mm -hmm. and you could add some sort of a head group. In krill oil's uh, situation, it, it's, it's a choline. Mm -hmm. Now, that molecule, this tiny little change, it's not a tiny change, but this change renders it into something quite beautiful. If you take this molecule and you put it into water, it actually spontaneously forms uh, membranes mm -hmm. or sheets. And this molecule really is the molecule that forms the sheets that every cell in our body is made of. So if I were to select a molecule of life, it w would not be DNA. It would be phospholipids. Phospholipids makes us. It's impossible to think of life mm -hmm. without this membrane. And this, these membranes can then, then be, um, you can embed uh, different kinds of machinery, anchoring points, everything that makes up a cell uh, can be made um, from these membranes. So here we have two glycerolipids. Mm -hmm. One of them is not water-soluble at all, will not form any sheets because mm -hmm. it's completely hydrophobic and, and basically are used for energy. And then the other, uh, other type makes us. We're made of it. Now, what is the difference between the phosphatidylcholine in krill mm -hmm. and that in soybeans or lecithin or, or sunflower? Is it primarily the fatty acids th that are attached and the length of those fatty and acids? And there are two differences. In, in, in krill, uh, krill is quite unique with respect to the fact that almost all of its phospholipids is phosphatidylcholine. Mm -hmm. And there is a little bit of phosphatidylethanolamine, but otherwise there are two other types, mm -hmm. uh, PS and PI, that you really don't find in krill at all. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty unique. Um, uh, in, uh, for example, in soybean, uh, or lecithin from soybeans, you will find pretty much equal amounts of the four different types. Oh, interesting. So that's mm -hmm. one. Okay. The so other one is, of course, the, the, the fatty acid uh, mm -hmm. composition. Mm -hmm. Krill has a very specific fatty acid composition. Mm -hmm. uh, almost every phosphatid, uh, uh, almost every um, uh, PC molecule has at least one EPA or DHA. Interesting. Uh, and in the other possible position, you will find uh, either oleic acid or, or palmitic acid. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much with those four uh, fatty acids pretty much describes the phosphatidylcholine you find in krill oil, which is pretty unique. Hmm. Um, so EPA or DHA? EPA and DHA in the middle position. In the middle position, and then yeah. you've got the uh, oleic or palmitic. Yeah. 
So saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated. Got yes. all three. You got all three. Uh, and in, in, in so oleic acid, you usually find in, for example, in a lot of it in, in olive oil. Mm -hmm. um, in macadamia nuts too. Yes, and it is. Um, it's interesting. Why is it like this? Probably because krill needs it like this. Mm -hmm. uh, it lives in the coldest water on the planet. Mm -hmm. And what I see, I've studied the phospholipids from krill now for many, many years, and consistent analysis show a very high degree of con conservation of the structure of the phospholipids that are exactly the same year in, year out. Uh, I see no, almost no variability at all. Mm. Uh, probably because otherwise they would freeze solid. Mm -hmm. uh, so it keeps them fluid. So uh, getting back to the original question was to seek to identify these ideal sources of fatty acids that yeah. we need. and then. And then you're bringing up the point that it's not just the fatty acids, it's actually the phospholipids, because indep independent of the fatty acids that are uh, attached in there, there's, there's other valuable contributions that they make. Yeah. And uh, so I think the simpler principle that we were referring to also was that to eat low down on the food chain. Because mm -hmm. the lower you go, the less likely the, 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 the animal has or the creature has to accumulate these toxins that are pervasive in the environment, l largely a result of industrialization of the planet, which has occurred in the last century or so. Yeah. Brought us a lot of benefits, but there's some downsides too to, to the health. You know, and, it, and it's, um, of course, um, that fact of being low in the food chain, uh, so less accumulation of toxins, mm -hmm. that being natural toxins or uh, man-made toxins, there are natural toxins too. Um, uh, makes that less probable. Uh, it's also, of course, the still, uh, and I would say thank God, uh, the, the Antarctic Ocean is still quite clean. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, most Which is of where most of the krill are harvested. Uh, all the krill is harvested. Well, th there's not some pirates that are hiring it? <laughs> no, because um, there are altogether 83 different kinds of krill. And oh. you find them in all oceans. Okay. So if you go to Thailand, uh, then they will serve you a little omelette in the morning mm -hmm. uh, on the beaches. And that is actually krill that I harvested just outside on that beach. It oh. looks like tiny little shrimp. Mm -hmm. You could get it in the fish market in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. um, but they will not contain those lipids. And the, uh, the, the Antarctic krill is very special. Mm -hmm. Because uh, imagine our planet. And then there is a band that we call the the, the polar circum, uh, circumglobal currents uh, at about 60 degrees uh, south. Mm -hmm. And belo below that, uh, the water is, in, in only a few kilometers, the water gets three to four, um, or two to, to four centigrades uh, colder. So essentially, it's like a curtain. Mm -hmm. And any, the only life forms that really cross across this um, uh, current is whales and, and birds. Mm. And anything living south of it is really confined to that area because they're adapted to the cold waters. Mm -hmm. And um, Antarctic krill is one of those. Mm -hmm. And the name is Euphasia superba. Superba is simply Latin for the biggest. Mm -hmm. So the Antarctic krill is the biggest of krill, mm. which is typical for cold water life in mm -hmm. Antarctica. Then the other thing is that it is large enough to be caught. If it is much smaller than that, then you would have to drag a gnat through the water. 
with such resistance that you would have to spend all your capital for buying oil. Mm -hmm. And uh, simply, uh, Superba is large enough to be caught. Then it has a social behavior. They're really fascinating, interesting uh, creatures. And it has a social behavior that makes them live in these huge, humongous uh, schools mm -hmm. uh, of millions and millions of tons, uh, which also then makes it possible to harvest them. So they're, they, they, they're special creatures with special features. Now, <clears throat> there are many people who are concerned, I believe, uh, rightly so, from some media sources that alarm individuals that krill are important <clears throat> sources of food for the whales and that harvesting krill could uh, damage them in some way. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Uh, uh, absolutely, and there is no doubt that that is a valid concern. Mm -hmm. um, then I would like to go back to the month, January 1958, when I was born. Mm -hmm. um, then at that date, or at that, in that month, Scientific American published a, an article or that um, for the first time mentioned harvesting of krill. And this is, um, in this uh, paper, uh, the author says man should stop whaling uh, and rather should rather harvest krill, uh, which would be a much better way of dealing with this. Then there would be enough food both for the whales and for us. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, um, if you calculate on the back of an envelope with the population of fin whales uh, that we see today, by the way, we have two ships down there, so we actually see those creatures all the time. Mm -hmm. the, the number of fin whales has increased. Uh, when you say we, you're referring to the company you work for, which is Ocker Marine. Ocker Biomarine, yes. Ocker Biomarine. Uh, so the fin whales are definitely back. They mm -hmm. have a f fairly short generation time, so they are able to come back. Uh, then we see a lot of orcas. Uh, we see humpbacks, uh, seals. Um, they would consume with the numbers we know, and we know pretty much exactly how much they eat. Uh, so the predators of krill in Antarctica would eat, give or take, 150 million tons a year. Mm -hmm. uh, the harvest last year was 210,000, 230,000 tons, which is a very small fraction. Um, the complete total harvest of krill yes. for commercial purposes, either human or animals. Yes, yeah. was 210,000. Uh, First, it's 150 million tons yes. that are being consumed by the, by the, predator. by the predators down there. Yes. Okay. So you have to put this in perspective. Um, of course, that being said, you would have to do it in a way that is still acceptable. So Responsible. Yeah, and you also have to... For example, you can't catch too much in one region, mm -hmm. so you can't just empty one region because then that might harm the the local life. So there are uh, there are regulations that simply give us a quota in a in a certain geographical space. Mm -hmm. And as as when as we are talking, we are we have to leave uh, one of these spaces because we reach the quota. Mm -hmm. All the quotas are set very conservatively. And who uh, sets these quotas? These quotas are set by something called the Camelar, mm -hmm. which is an international uh, collaboration um, uh, between, I think, 
at uh, we, 29 or 30-ish uh, different countries. It has, and it regulates all um, harvesting or all uh, activity towards uh, marine life in, in Antarctica. It has actually, I think it is a very good uh, example of a good international collaboration because it has really secured um, um, preservation of these areas. Um, all um, all uh, regulation has to be reached by consensus. Mm -hmm. So there are very strict ramifications for how this works. And then, of course, outside of that, there are independent uh, organizations that also uh, certify or not certify activities in Antarctica. We have teamed up with, uh, with uh, um, MSC, uh, Marine Stewardship Council, to, to have our activities uh, in Antarctica MSC certified. And we were uh, the first to, to get such a certification. And I think even uh, when we were certified, the assessment of our activities came out with the best uh, grades ever given by MSC. Uh, now, MSC is not set in stone. It is something that has to be repeated. Mm -hmm. uh, they, will they will follow our activities. They will also follow if there is any change in, in climate or in biology in the area, then the conditions for our certification might change. Uh, so far, we've been recertified. Uh, last year, we had an assessment if we were able, or if they were able to find any influence uh, of our activity in the region where we harvest or fish, and the answer they came up with was no. Uh, they couldn't even detect any such uh, effects. That being said, I think questions about um, about um, uh, responsible harvesting in Antarctica is still very important. And uh, you need to do more research. Mm -hmm. uh, so you need to invest in that kind of research uh, in that area to assess, for example, such, ease, such simple things as the total population of krill. Uh, uh, it is set uh, with wide safety margins. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, and uh, Archibiomarine has, has invested together with governmental organizations, for example, the University of Tasmania mm -hmm. in, uh, in Australia, in, into larger long-term research projects, trying to find out much more about how krill live and what kind of factors will influence uh, its, um, its uh, for example, the size of the population. A conventional trawling is simply you drag a net behind your boat. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when the net is full, you hive it. Mm -hmm. So you drag it on board a boat and you empty it. Mm -hmm. Now, that is not very efficient. And then there are dangers. Whenever you take it out of the water, you risk uh, catching something that you don't want to mm -hmm. catch. So the last thing you want to do when you catch krill is to catch anything else. That will ruin your, not just to be kind, but it will ruin your product. Mm -hmm. Your product. So. Uh, we develop technologies that where we keep the troll submerged, so mm -hmm. the net is submerged for weeks at a time, mm -hmm. and then instead of hiving the troll, getting on a board, there is actually a large hose, mm -hmm. an 11-inch hose, uh, through which we um, levitate the krill live on board. So it actually flows through this hose and then gets on board, and which means that we can, uh, we can go on 
Right. As fresh as you can get. Fresh as you can get. <laughs> and you can keep your machinery going for 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, also, when doing research, this is a treasure cove mm -hmm. because you can actually sample the krill from different depths live. Mm -hmm. uh, and th this is what we're utilizing with this project with the University of Tasmania mm -hmm. because we have 10 months worth of sampling every day or many times a day. Mm -hmm. So, so this. Uh, this technology, um, we call it eco-harvesting, uh, made it possible for us to do it in, in mm -hmm. this way. And, and also, there are provisions to keep any other animal from entering the troll. So you're not harming other wildlife, which is common in almost all other so, uh, sources of, or s strategies for harvesting these krill, where they're, they're killing porpoises, not porpoises, but uh, uh, penguins, yep. and sea lions, and... and yeah, and, and, and um, bycatch is now completely eliminated. I mean, it's pretty clear from the information you provided that krill is harvested sustainably, and it's almost, it's impractical, if not almost mechanically impossible to do it otherwise yes. because of the, infor the, the, the yeah, regulations and everything. But how does that, I mean, how, nothing like that is occurring for the fish industry. And they're decimating these fish supplies, and they're creating fish oils 100 times the source of krill oil. The, the only two, well, f first of all, um, uh, if you could source fish oil uh, responsibly, mm. then really I have no objections to that at all. You know, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I never see krill oil as I in a direct competition with, with fish oil. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and why is that? Well, krill oil... First of all, krill oil is a mixture of phospholipids and triglycerides. Mm -hmm. So actually fish oil is almost a constituent of krill oil. So mm -hmm. uh, krill oil is like a box in a box. Mm -hmm. So krill oil is, is everything that fish oil is. And more. And more. Yeah. So it's, it's like with any get your gun, yeah. everything you can do, I can do better. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, I, so that, that, you know, krill oil or fish oil has its, uh, its plays, um, but it isn't Krillol is a much more complete lipid package. Uh, it's a it more complete nutrient. And it also has this important antioxidant, yes. astaxanthin, yes. that is not present in fish oil and it helps protect these highly perishable and oxidizable yeah. fatty acids. Interestingly, when you eat salmon, it, mm -hmm. is, uh, it is present in salmon. Yes. Uh, so that's, again, a point where krill oil is uh, one maybe not correct way, but tempting way to phrase it is that krill oil is more fish than fish oil. Mm -hmm. So krill oil contains more of the complete lipid package that you would get when you eat fish. And our stomachs are made, or are got it made for, for um, digesting and absorbing mm -hmm. food. The primary reason you, you, why you're consuming these fats yes. is so, so they are deposited in your cell membranes. Exactly. That's where, that's where they, do, they do their thing and really facilitate yeah. the, all their health yeah. benefits. It is. It's if they're not there, they're not working. Well, at least for the majority of their effects, yes. Mm -hmm. Then also remember that both, European, uh, both the European authorities as well as the American authorities have had a fairly large assessments going on with regards to our intake of choline. Mm -hmm. and, um, Which is the phospholipid that's primary in, 
in Creole. Yeah, it's, it it's is. Like so it's phosphatidyl cola. 80, 85, 90%? Yeah, 80, I would say 90%. 90%. So, uh, so it's really a good source of phosphatidyl cola. Um, and the intake of cola, both in the United States and in Europe, is about 80% of what is uh, regarded as what we need. Mm. And remember, now we're talking about a basic building block. And what do we need choline for as a building block? Oh, you need it for your membranes. Mm -hmm. uh, you need it as a methyl donor in a number of, uh, of, of fundamental bio, mm -hmm. biochemical transformations. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's simply almost like um, a basic building block for our bodies. Um, you also need it for acetylcholine, a neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. uh, you need it... Um, uh, to maintain uh, normal liver health, uh, just to mention a few. Yeah, I'd like to get back on these the fatty acids again and the emulsification that we were talking about with the phospholipids. Um, one of my new passions is optimizing mitochondrial dysfunction, mm -hmm. and and the result of that is uh, the understanding is is to shift to a diet that has somewhere between seventy and eighty percent of your calories coming from fat. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to make that commitment to that massive amount of a macronutrient, then you've got to pay very special attention to the quality of the fat or you will ruin yourself. Mm. So um, that's been my focus. And I've chose to obtain most of my omega-6 from seeds and some nuts, but mostly seeds, like black sesame, black cumin. Uh, and I also use things like flax and chia for the omega-3s. So that I do, we're not, we're not vilifying omega-3 fats. I mean plant-based. You do need some ALA, alpha-linoleic oh, acid. Yeah. You just don't need an excess of it. And you don't, you don't be delusional and think you're going to convert that to EPA and AHA, because you just aren't. No. So, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't take it. You should, you should, it's very healthy fat. So I take these seeds, and I, don't, I used to grind them fresh before I consume, but now I soak them overnight, mm -hmm. which actually softens them considerably. And then when you put them in an immersion blender and to make a smoothie out of it, works pretty well. But I've been it recently occurred to me that these are fats. And I bet I would absorb them better if I emulsify them. Mm -hmm. So I've been taking some krill phospholipids, which is not a product that's commercially available because but because of our relationship with you, I was able to get a supply. Mm -hmm. And I've been using a few grams a day in these smoothies and it's it, it, if you take large amounts of this krill fossil, there's a significant taste to it. But if it's a small amount, I don't think you need very, very large amounts. So maybe you could talk about the amounts that you'd need and some of the benefits of that strategy of emulsifying these fats in a smoothie. Well, it's well known that I think um, even more important than the fats themselves, there are a lot of micronutritions in, in your seeds. Mm -hmm. And it's the only strategy our bodies have followed is to emulsify them. So there are, if, if something is quite fat soluble, then one way of having a good uptake is to increase its, its, its surface. And, and this emulsification is it actually is a supplement. We call them liposomes, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's the same process. It's, it's a form of, a liposome is a form of emulsification, yeah, which massively increases the ability to integrate that, absorb it and integrate into the cell membrane. Well, for, 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 for substances that are, that are lipid soluble and, and not very well taken up, it is the strategy mm -hmm. of increasing its uptake. Um, it is, uh, it is, uh, and you only need a little bit. Yeah, uh, even having too much might not really help you. In, yeah, yeah, because there's respect. not a benefit. No, because so, you know, so much that you need to emulsify something. How much you need? Uh, if we're talking about how much you need of omega-3s in general, then I think there has been a great lack 
of reliable ways of measuring that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I only think you can answer that question by measuring. Uh, like the omega-3 index? Yes. Yeah. And I actually not just like the, I think um, uh, a paper recently came out only a week ago mm -hmm. that looked at the omega-3 index, uh, the omega-3 intake on a global scale and identified countries with high intake and low intake of, of, uh, of omega-3s. Uh, I think it was by Ken Stark and Norman Salem was also involved in this paper. Um, the, it's a tremendous paper. It really puts a lot of numbers behind uh, things that we really need to know with regard to the global consumption. They also com compare different ways of measuring uh, omega-3s. Uh, in your blood, in your plasma, and in the erythrocyte. And they found consistently that the best way of doing it, the one that correlates best with your tissue levels and your whole body levels, is the omega-3 index. Mm -hmm. Which uh, is a red blood cell or erythrocyte Yes, and it needs to be done in a specific way mm -hmm. and in a reputa uh, re Re reproducible way. But um, doing that, you will know um, you, your index should be somewhere above six, mm -hmm. uh, rather like eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, just said mine down was close to ten. Yeah, and it should be. Um, it, there is, we haven't. There is no danger limit. No. I've seen in in experimental animals. I've seen levels up to in primates. I've seen levels up to twenty. Wow. I've heard that dolphins have levels way above twenty. Wow. So they're really loaded with omega-3. Yeah. Well, their diet will secure that. And they're pretty in intelligent animals too, so their mm -hmm. brains will be, well, will be well supplied. But, so I think the only way to really address that question is to have people measure their levels, mm -hmm. and then they will have to adjust their dosaging until they reach their, their, their levels. Yeah, that's one of the, we're in the process of uh, highlighting that test and making it available to people, because yeah. I think it's an important measurement. Otherwise, you're just guessing, you don't know. I mean, you could take certain supplements or food sources, but you don't know until you measure it. And you may be surprised when you, when you finally do measure it. All right, since the, the primary viewers of this our discussion would be Americans who are notoriously low in omega-3 from a variety of studies, I'm wondering if you could provide some recommendations from your understanding of the literature as to how they would get those back up. Again, uh, the, the, the quantities, but ideally uh, it would be coming from fish if they can manage to budget that into their, their food, food sources. But if not, then good sources of krill or even fish oil. But I think krill is better for a variety of reasons. So maybe you can discuss the dosages. Well, with regards to fish, you would need, or, and then don't forget fish isn't just fish. Mm -hmm. If you eat tilapia, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter. It will not provide any long chain omega trees to speak of. And why is that? Well, it simply uh, doesn't contain that kind of, of... There is a lot of fish that really do not contain a it's lot of... It's not all protein. fish. No, it is... And the fish ideally would need to be harvested in some cold water. Yes. That's, the, that's the trigger for these high fats, because that's where the algae that supply yeah. them are, are so thriving. So there are particular types of fish that are fatty fish mm -hmm. and fish that lives in cold waters. Mm -hmm. so that's, that's, and you need to simply um, uh, inform yourself Mm -hmm. uh, with regards to if your particular type of fish contains enough of omega, the long-chain omega-3s or not. Um, but I would guess um, in a fatty fish, uh, typically I would say two servings 
um, two to three servings a, a week. Mm -hmm. uh, um, a normal service a week of, of that fish would, would, would be enough. And because of the kinetics, if you take it three times a week, then that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, with, regards to, um, with regards to krill oil, uh, again, depending on who you are and what you do, but I, I certainly would not recommend less than a gram. Uh, what I, might be ideal? I've, I would, maybe I should answer by myself. I, I mm -hmm. take two grams a day. Okay. Uh, and by that I am pretty well supplemented. Then I'm between eight and ten. And your omega-3 index? In my omega-3 index. Which is, the, which is the ultimate test. I mean, we can make general recommendations, but ideally you want to test yourself. And this is, a, this is not a hard test to get. It's available, and you can do these omega-3 indexes to confirm it, whether yeah. that dose is right for you. Because yeah. maybe you're taking them right with exercise, and you're burning them as fuel rather than integrating them into your cell membranes. Well, and then also I would say I wouldn't ever be within the, the dosage red or dosage um, ranges we're looking, I wouldn't be afraid of taking too much. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I hardly think uh, within the normal ranges we're seeing that you would be able to do that. And I have still not seen an overdose of fish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's, uh, that's Other than an allergy. Because if you have any food on a regular allergies basis, allergies is absolutely clear. You know, it would uh, be and a, uh, and that is just um, the healthiest food you can have an allergy to. No. So that's why it's good not to eat the same thing every day and just kind of mix things up a bit. Agreed. So I, I think one of the most important uh, uh, items that we discuss is what I, the, I opened up the interview with, with this this confusion, this massive confusion between plant-based versus animal-based omega-3s. Mm. And we just really want to set the record straight that you are seriously deceiving yourself if you believe that excluding all animal-based uh, omega-3 fats is going, and, and focusing on taking large amounts of plant-based is going to provide you with the raw materials you need for a healthy body and a healthy brain. It's just not going to work because your body can't convert that much. And there's a lot of people who believe that, even a lot of health professionals who believe that. No, I think that it's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, all research points, points in that direction. Our ability to uh, elongate and uh, desaturate the fats is quite uh, limited, or not to say very limited. Uh, and uh, you just can't. There is no way uh, within the normal population, there is no way outside of having marine long-chain phospholipids. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not to vilify plant-based omega-3s. We need them. We really need them. And if you only had marine-based omega-3s, you would not be healthy because you need the balance. You need, you, need all, you need all of them. So, but you, so that you just don't want to exclude one or the other. You, we need them both. Need to to totally to agree. Yeah. Uh, it is not a question about uh, this or that, mm -hmm. uh, you need both, but you need them in a balanced quantity. Yeah. And you cannot simply avoid marine uh, long-chain omega-3s by taking huge amounts of plant-based. So I think we've established it pretty clear. So maybe you can provide us with some advice for those who are staunchly vegetarian for whatever reason, philosophical or otherwise and they refuse to eat fish, which is fine, or krill even, because they view that as a life form. So uh, could we take it a level below krill, which would be the algae? I think so you're right with algae. 
In yeah, and, you, and what would your recommendation for those individuals be with respect to algae? Well, um, uh, obviously addressing the items of concern, the toxicities that we talked about earlier. I think you're still left with uh, some ex uh, lipid extract of algae. Okay. Uh, and uh, um, I do not know much about okay. such extract. Uh, I know that the products used for baby formula mm -hmm. is, technically speaking, uh, very high quality mm -hmm. with respect to control of, of the extraction and, for example, any residual solvents. But uh, you're simply left with that. Mm -hmm. uh, I would still maintain that the best way of doing this would be to, to have some sort of seafood. Right. Uh, I don't know if any larger algaes uh, in, from, from, from marine sources would ever be available. Uh, as I said, uh, there would always be concerns with algaes uh, from marine sources if they may contain uh, natural toxins. But what about sources like chlorella or spirulina? Would they have the EP and the DHA in them also? No. No, they don't. Because they're, they're not grown in cold no, water. That was no. the reason. So not that I know of. And, and uh, still, there is a lot we don't know about algae. Mm -hmm. And they're quite interesting sources of, uh, of nutrition. And I think in the years to come, we'll see a lot more. Sure. A lot of exciting new research coming. But, um, but then, then um, still, I maintain that krill is a perfectly good way of collecting. Well, and, and cost effective. Yeah. So if, if you're, as many people are limited on budget for having fish at, at a, the right type of fish at a frequency which you need to, to improve your omega-3 index, then krill may be a reasonable alternative. And it's also a question about your carbon footprint. Uh, you're sure what now? Your carbon footprint. Uh, carbon footprint, yes. Because. Uh, Krill lets us do this in a way that makes sense with regards to the amount of energy that we have to invest in the harvesting. Mm -hmm. If you're going to harvest something like microalgae, you would have to invest enormous amounts of energy. Even growing algae requires a lot of energy. Sure, if you're going to, gr right, if you're going to do it in a way that you're, it's going to be clean and free from these toxins, it's a very capital and uh, energy resource intensive initiative, yeah. so investment. I still think that the advice that was given in the, 19, the January 1958 issue of Scientific American that we should stop whaling and rather catch krill is okay. still a very valid one. That's good. Well, I think on those words, it's good to close. And I want to thank you for coming all the way to Chicago from Norway and enlightening us, enlightening us with your wisdom. Thank you very much.